Today, we will be talking trash on a global level. It's not really a pretty picture today, but hopefully there's hope to think about for changing the future. Towards the end of the program, we'll be talking with a local artist, Richard Lang, about a local art installation that features the global issue of plastics in the ocean. But first, I'll be talking with Captain Charles Moore, the founder of the Algalita Marine Research Foundation, a nonprofit environmental organization dedicated to the preservation of the marine environment. I had the pleasure of sailing with Charlie last year to assist and learn about Laysan albatross breeding on Guadalupe Island, Mexico. Charlie is passionate about the ocean and has spent most of his life sailing on the high seas. It was through his transoceanic voyages that he discovered an enormous area in the North Pacific that surrounded his boat with plastic. Charlie has since worked to quantify what he saw. Through his studies, he found that an area in the size of the ocean about the size of Africa had in mass six times more plastic particles than plankton in the water column. Ever since, Captain Moore has dedicated his time and resources to understanding and remediating the ocean's plastic load. He works feverishly on the national and international level on, ocean, on issues facing the oceans and coasts and long-term health effects on humans and the marine environment. Welcome, Charlie. You're live on Ocean Currents. Oh, thanks, Jennifer. It's great to be on your show. Excellent. So, Charlie, I first want to ask, um, how did you find yourself in the middle of the ocean and surrounded by trash? What were you doing out there? Well, um, we had um, entered the Transpac yacht race to test a new mast. We were dismasted um, after having built our research vessel in Hobart, Tasmania, and sailed it to Fiji and American Samoa. We were on our way toward the equator when a squall uh, broke our mast off, and uh, we had to retreat and uh, couldn't get uh, a mast in Samoa, so we had to uh, put the boat on top of a uh, freighter carrying uh, Starkist tuna from American Samoa to San Diego and get a new mast built here in um, the L.A. Long Beach area, and we wanted to test it out under extreme conditions, make sure we never had this problem again. So we entered uh, a race. Uh, we were actually the first uh, catamaran to ever officially enter the uh, Trans-Pacific uh, Yacht Race from uh, San Pedro to Honolulu because uh, uh, being a research vessel, we're slower than the other catamarans. That was, 97 was the first year they allowed catamarans to officially enter the race, and we had a handicap because of our uh, weight. So um, we were the first uh, catamaran ever to officially start the Transpac, and we, we did well. We got um, first in our division and third in our class, and we hit a top speed of uh, 20 knots under sail, and the mast held up good. And when we got to Hawaii, uh, you know, it's a straight line, basically, between L.A. and Hawaii when you do the Transpac. And you try to avoid this area called the North Pacific Gyre, because it lacks the winds you need to sail a fast race. But... Uh, and on the way back, most of the sailors uh, avoid it by heading north towards Alaska and then uh, hanging a right uh, around the uh, Washington border and, and then sailing, catching the westerlies up there and, and, and sailing back and then come down uh, to the latitude of L.A. But uh, we're a research vessel, and we had uh, twin diesel engines, and we had a supply of fuel. And so we decided to take a shortcut through this gyre 97 was an El Nino year, so the high was really big and really in place, and it was quite calm out there. And, and the calmness does allow uh, whatever debris is out there to float to the surface if it's uh, lighter than water. So 
uh, I was just shocked to see uh, in the whole week it took us to cross this huge atmospheric system. Uh, every day, I, I mean, I couldn't go on deck without seeing some kind of debris floating by. I expected, you know, that's about as far from land as you can get anywhere on Earth. It's about a thousand miles from Hawaii and about a thousand miles from San Francisco. And, uh, you know, there shouldn't be any trash out there. I mean, uh, nothing really makes it out there. There's no seaweed out there. There's no insects, really. Uh, there's no um, man-made debris uh, except for plastic. And uh, I was shocked because uh, I'd sailed that uh, Hawaii uh, route when I was 14 years old back in the 60s and never remembered seeing debris. But uh, every day when I went on deck uh, and any time of the day or any time of the night, if I just stood by the rail and looked over, I would see something floating by. And I said, well, you know, if this stuff weighs, if I'm if I'm in the middle of a system and this stuff weighs, say, a half a pound per 100 square meters, I've got the equivalent of uh, the largest landfill in, in L.A. out here floating around. And I, I got curious and decided to talk to some scientists and see how we could come back and quantify the amount of plastic in an area that's you know, is is so enormous and so surprisingly polluted, uh, so far from land. So we got uh, a sample design from the Southern California Coastal Water Research Project, uh, and their statistician helped us uh, design a plan to go back and and sample that area. And uh, a couple years later, we were back out there with a, what's called a manatrol. It's like a manta ray with a big, wide mouth and wings on it, and it skims the ocean surface just like a manta ray does catching uh, zooplankton, anything bigger than a third of a millimeter. And we skimmed that thing for over 100 kilometers, random distances, uh, both day and night, uh, and uh, brought the samples back with us uh, and quantified them, and we were shocked to learn that... Uh, for every pound of plankton we got, we had picked up six pounds of plastic fragments. So that shocked the scientific world and uh, shocked us. And ever since then, we've been uh, trying to figure out how we can stem the tide of uh, plastic running into the ocean. Charlie, did you, did, when you're out there, both sampling and for the first time, could you tell where some of this stuff came from? Because sometimes debris has, you know, lots of writing and inscriptions on it, you can somewhat tell where it's from. Did you have a good sense of where a lot of this has come from? Uh, we can sometimes tell where what we call the macro debris comes from. The larger bits are maybe objects we can identify or may have markings on them. But the micro debris, stuff less than five millimeters in diameter, uh, completely unknown uh, where that comes from. So uh, in the macro debris, uh, it's sort of a um, fluke that most of it comes from uh, Japan and, and uh, the coast of Asia, and the reason is that it only takes about a year to get out there, um, maybe even as little as six months if it's got a lot of windage, because the winds are blowing uh, from east, uh, from west to east, and pushing the stuff towards the United States. I mean, we know about the upper air currents doing the same thing. You fly to Hawaii, it's... Uh, going to be uh, a lot faster coming home than it is going from California to Hawaii. You save about an hour, and that's the upper air currents, uh, the jet stream flowing from Asia towards the United States, and we know that the particulates from 
Asian air pollution uh, reach uh, San Francisco. I believe there's a sampling station on Mount Tamalpais for that. So uh, those winds, those those currents push debris, too, at the sea surface level. And uh, uh, Asian debris makes it to this garbage patch where it kind of recirculates uh, in a very quick time. So what happens is sun will break the larger bits of debris into smaller fragments, but it doesn't have time to break the big stuff down into the little stuff in the time Asian debris gets there, whereas our stuff, it's not as if we don't pollute. I mean, we got 2.3 billion pieces of plastic flowing down the L.A. and San Gabriel Rivers in just three days of sampling on a state-sponsored uh, project. But uh, that debris is going to wash around Hawaii, towards Vietnam and the Philippines, up towards Japan, and then come around back into our garbage patch. So it's taking, you know, close to five years to get around there. And by that time, our stuff is busted up into little bits. So we don't pin the... If you were just looking at the large debris, you'd say, well, it's all coming from Asia. But if you look at the small debris, you have to wonder, you know, just how much of it is coming uh, from our coast as well. So basically, once uh, a piece of plastic enters the ocean, it has a life of its own, in fact, touring more of the ocean than many humans do, and starts big and eventually photodegrades to smaller and smaller bits. It never really goes away. Yeah, I I mean, you hear estimates. uh, Groups will have uh, boards at Coastal Cleanup Day that say how long a a six-pack ring takes to degrade versus a cigarette lighter versus a styrofoam cup, et cetera, et cetera, and... You know, some of the estimates are up to 500 years for some of those objects, but these are just guesses. I mean, we've only had consumer plastics for about half a century, and if we're telling people it takes five centuries to degrade, uh, that's just based on guesses, uh, looking at how the stuff photodegrades and then eventually biodegrades. You see, the individual plastic polymer is several hundred molecules, maybe up to several thousand molecules, uh, individual molecules long. This polymerization process makes a huge uh, individual molecule. So you've got uh, a situation in which there's no bioengineered bacteria, nothing that can really eat uh, petroleum-based plastic. So even the individual plastic polymer itself must degrade further. So you get down to, you know, extremely small microscopic sizes of plastic polymers that are floating around out there that still uh, have to undergo further photodegradation and break that polymer chain. Uh, And it's unknown, you know, in many of these plastics how long that takes uh, before some organism can come along and and do what happens so quickly in a compost pile, turn things, you know, back into minerals and carbon dioxide and, and water. So this must be raising many, many concerns amongst the biological community in regards to the health implications for marine life in the ocean. Many organisms filter feed on on plankton, and maybe some organisms are thinking they're eating plankton, and yet they're eating plastic. Well, even non-thinking organisms uh, probably are eating more than anything else. I mean, the base of the marine food web is not selective feeding by things with eyes and taste buds. Uh, The base of the marine food web is uh, mucus web-feeding jellies and salps, uh, zooplankton and krill that really, uh, I mean, there's some selectivity in the larger zooplankton, but the smaller 
uh, mucus web-feeding jellies are basically eating anything they bump into. They're not discriminating. They're not looking for something. Uh, they're just designed to take advantage of the fact that historically everything out there was edible. I mean, except in some cases for volcanic pumice, which floats on the sea surface, there was nothing out there. I mean, we do not find, uh, unless it's a big log from the Pacific Northwest or a huge bamboo stalk from Asia, we don't find uh, even chips of wood out there. Uh, most everything is biodegraded by the time it gets to the Central Pacific Gyre. So uh, the issue of um, feeding uh, and removing these plastics indiscriminately uh, is a serious issue because we found at the one millimeter size class, uh, if we had say a thousand particles in our net, a half a millimeter size half a millimeter size class, we'd have half as many, and a third of a millimeter, we'd have half again as many. So rather than you know having a cookie that crumbles into lots of tiny cookie crumbs, we were seeing you know these cookies less crumbs than cookies. So that means. To me, that these things are being removed from the system, and I, I can't imagine that all of those are simply sinking because they they're lighter than water and they mix thoroughly in the water column. So, uh, a good uh, possibility is that they're being removed by the base of the marine food web, and uh, it, it might not be so serious except that these things are sponges for uh, oily pollutants. Anything that's uh, what we call uh, lipophilic, you know, the the tendency to absorb oily materials, any any uh, pesticide, herbicide, industrial chemical that has an oily character, these plastics are, are, are excellent, these polymers are excellent at absorbing those. So we found adsorption factors up to a million times the ambient levels in seawater so that you have, say, a PCB content in the seawater of, of one, you could have a PCB content in these plastic bits of a million and that's disturbing that means that all these little bits being removed are being removed uh, by organisms that are then subject to a pollutant load a million times greater than what they would be subjected to in the, in the water itself and then on itself up the food web too I assume yeah the bioaccumulation occurs uh, now we do have a question uh, that we need to answer and that is uh, given the fact that these plastics are uh, fairly open molecular structures uh, and that these pollutants may penetrate fairly deeply into the polymer matrix, how much is desorbed from those plastics into the marine food web during the digestion process? You know, uh, we don't have answers to that question. That's the direction our research is taking us to find out the bioavailability. We have no doubt that the plastics are polluted. Uh, Dr. Takata at the University of uh, Tokyo has uh, an international pellet watch going on for looking for the pre-production plastic pellets that are 10% of the plastics that we find worldwide. They disperse widely and they escape from factories. Uh, the raw material of the plastics industry, 22,000 a pound and 300 billion pounds made each year, and so a lot of them escape, and, and he's uh, soliciting uh, pellets from citizens of the, uh, worldwide that be picked up off beaches and sent to his lab, and, and using them as a proxy for the water quality, because he's the one that discovered these adsorption factors of 10 to the 6th, and, you know, we're getting a catalog of 
marine plastic pollution and what kind of levels of pollutants and what types of pollutants it contains through his his efforts. So, yeah, I mean, there's no question that these things are polluted. Now, the, the question we need to answer is uh, when uh, a jellyfish uh, grabs a hold of one of these things and then is eaten by a sea turtle, how much of that pollution is being absorbed into the reproductive system of the sea turtle? You know, you might think, well, probably a very small amount, and that's probably the case. But it just so happens that these chemicals operate at levels uh, astoundingly low. I mean, it can be a part per trillion and affect the reproductive system of these organisms. So uh, the amount desorbed uh, needs to be studied. The effects on the animals needs to be studied. Uh, and human... Um, studies are in progress, and, and the results are in on some of them, and uh, the results are not good. I mean, uh, if we are eating fish that have uh, desorbed enough of these uh, chemicals to uh, be uh, in the food that we eat, uh, we're looking at uh, reproductive failure in a matter of a few generations for uh, large parts of our own species. Uh, it's a very serious issue, and uh, I think uh, there's no longer any doubt that uh, we've got to be very careful about bioaccumulation in the marine food web, uh, pregnant women eating uh, canned tuna. You know, it's not just the... Uh, it's not just the marine food web. It's the human health concern as well, which is very tied into why we need to care about the ocean as a whole because of the human connection. I just want to let listeners know they're listening to KWMR and Point Reyes Station. This program is Ocean Currents, and we're talking with Captain Charles Moore. Um, Charlie, I want to go back to your pellet watch, um, uh, the website that Dr. Takata has, because this is something people out here on the West Coast or anywhere that might be listening that might go to the beach could potentially participate in. Yeah. Um, we've noticed that in Point Reyes, I've started to see pellets up here as well in the drift line, and mm -hmm. they're pretty yellow by the time I see them. And I know that on the pellet watch website, maybe you can give it because I don't have it here, Dr. Takata gives specific um, instructions how to collect a pellet that you can then send in, and he'll analyze and send back the results to whoever sent it in, and that's something anybody can do. Do you know the website? Yeah, I when I it's it's kind of a funny website uh, name, so I just Google uh, International Pellet Watch, and it comes right up the first thing. Okay. Uh, and uh, the yellow pellets he's found are more polluted than the, the clear ones. So he's asking, you know, if you if you have a lot of them, he'd really, you know, like more of the yellow ones. But uh, he'll he'll take whatever you can give him. He, he'd like to get 200. You know, I recently returned from a, uh, a visit to the North Sea and found uh, 406 meters of strand line. Uh, and went then to Sicily for a conference and found uh, 200 and 23 in just two square meters of beach. So you can find, where you find, uh, you know, other types of debris or seaweed washed up, you may find a lot of these things. Uh, then again, you may not find that many, but he analyzes them one at a time. The reason he wants a lot of them is to throw out, you know, uh, outliers and get an average. But uh, no matter what you find, you can find instructions on how to send it to him, and I'm sure it will be gratefully received, and, and this uh, allows us to kind of have a proxy for the quality of the seawater where it was. a very inexpensive, 
uh, way uh, to expand our volunteer monitoring efforts worldwide and get actually fairly decent data on water quality offshore of the beach where these pellets are sampled, because what he's done is taken uh, mussels and grown them offshore where he's picked up his pellets and gotten relationships between the pollutants in the water and the pollutants in the pellet, and he's got a fairly tight relationship with what these mussels are filtering out and what the pellets are filtering out, and he can give you a pretty good idea what the water quality is where you are by looking at your pellets. Charlie, here is an interesting idea that I just had. Is there, since there are so many toxic uh, pollutants out there, microscopic and, and, as you said, like to attach to plastic, has has anyone thought of some type of way to, this might be bad, but putting in huge amounts of plastic in a controlled setting where they're not drifting around, but they're maybe on a buoy where they could attract those chemicals or pollutants and then a way to remove them from the ocean. Is that too Uh, crazy um, to think about? Let me uh, just run you through the whole gamut of things, and then you'll see uh, the realistic uh, or non-realistic reality of your idea. First of all, um, in the event of an oil spill, the first thing that's deployed is booms. And you know, uh, if you've done any uh, looking around marinas and so on, you've seen these booms deployed around boats being fueled, or in harbors you'll see big ships that are in port having these booms around them. Those are expanded polypropylene. Those are very rapid sponges for oily pollutants. Any oil or gasoline that's spilled in the ocean can be absorbed by plastic very quickly. If you look on the web, you'll find all kind of companies out there advertising how fast their plastic booms and and other media can absorb oily pollutants. Uh, in seconds, these things suck up, just like a sponge in water sucks up water immediately, these plastics suck up, suck up oil immediately. They're very effective in, in sucking up oil. And uh, I know uh, the California Coastal Commission's uh, clean boating program uh, provides uh, bilge pads for recreational boaters, which if you throw one of these expanded polypropylene pads down in the bilge of your boat, it will soak up the oil, and then you can pump the water that's in your bilge overboard without polluting the ocean. So uh, so it would basically be too quick. It, it absorbs too quickly. It wouldn't be a well, very no, efficient it, cleanup. it's great that it absorbs quickly. That's you want, and then you remove it and, and, and hopefully recycle it, and, uh, you know, you've, you've eliminated some of the pollution in the ocean. Also, um, you know, uh, uh, on a little more somber note, uh, the, you know, nuclear industry wants to uh, continue creating nuclear power after uranium supplies on land run out by putting absorbing buoys like what you suggest in the ocean to collect uh, uranium uh, out of the ocean. And uh, work is being done in Japan on that uh, to uh, collect uh, uh, metals, uh, even radioactive metals, uh, out of the ocean. So there's many different media that can absorb things out of the ocean for different purposes. Now, your your bottom line question, though, is can we be effective in, in cleaning up the ocean with these technologies? And the answer is no. Um, the ocean is the largest habitat on Earth. The average depth of the ocean is two miles. You cannot create any kind of cleanup for 1.37 billion cubic kilometers. Imagine 
a swimming pool. How many swimming pools would be in a cubic kilometer? Uh, millions, you know, I mean, thousands, depending on the size of the swimming pool, but uh, that's one cubic kilometer. A cubic kilometer is an enormous mass of water. There's 1.37 billion cubic kilometers of ocean, and our research indicates it's fairly well polluted. I mean, we did research at 10 meters. We did research at 30 meters hauling these bongo nets that are designed to discreetly sample different depths. And the amount of plastic at 10 meters was exactly equal to the amount of plastic at 30 meters. This stuff is totally mixed in, and every single trawl had plastic in it. So it looks like the stuff is just about everywhere, and you can't examine it uh, to get it out, uh, so you can't clean up the plastic itself. And deploying more plastic, first of all, it wouldn't, you know, it might remove some of the uh, pollutants in the ocean, but it wouldn't remove the plastic in the ocean, and the plastic in the ocean is already polluted. So, My- microscopic pieces of it still leaching. Yeah. yeah. Well, so we've got this huge issue of too much in the ocean and more coming and has there been any work, and maybe you're doing this, in working with the industry itself in finding out ways to reduce the amount of plastic we produce, finding alternatives? What type of work are you doing on the industry well, level? Well, you know, uh, the plastic industry uh, is responsible for about 10% of the problem. Uh, they like to say that if people just were more aware and uh, disposed of their trash properly um, and took personal responsibility for their discards, uh, we wouldn't have this problem. But as a matter of fact, based on our research, out of that 2.3 billion particles going down the Olean San Gabriel River, there was 236 million plastic pellets coming directly from industry. So they're about 10% of the problem. And if you look on beaches worldwide and count the, the fragments and count the pellets, you get about 10%, no matter where you are, whether it's in Pagan Island in the Marianas or on uh, Camillo Beach in Hawaii. And you're talking just about the industry that, that the pellets are produced out of, not yeah, the actual plastic plastics. bottles. They're the plastics that are melted to make your plastic chairs and your plastic pipe and your plastic Venetian blinds and uh, your plastic bags. Those are all coming to the factory that makes those things in the form of these little less than five millimeter plastic pellets, these oval things that look like fish eggs and, and absorb up to a million times the level of pollutants in the ambient seawater. So you've got a situation in which the, the industry is releasing billions of poison pills into the ocean. Now we work with them on a plan called Operation Clean Sweep, which is designed to uh, give personal responsibility, if you will, to the individual plastic factory uh, to you know, do basic housekeeping, not let these things get onto the ground and flow out with the stormwater. But it's a voluntary program, and it costs money for the companies to sign up with the APC and the SPI, the American Plastic Council and the Society of the Plastic Industry, and get the instructions on how to do this program and and get listed on their website as a participant. And I think there's probably less than 1% of the total uh, plastic processors signed up for this. But having said that, uh, and... 10% 10% of the problem is their pellets. Uh, the industry itself is responding to marketers and to Walmarts and other supermarket chains that are demanding this fancy packaging. Uh, I mean, if you go to buy a tiny little chip for your camera to uh, put your digital photos on, 
uh, you'll get it in a package that's hundreds of times the volume and hundreds of times the weight of the actual chip that you're buying. Um, that's not because the plastic industry told the marketers to do that. That's because the marketers requested the plastic industry to make that stuff. So what we've got to do if we want to change the quantity of plastics produced and, and, and discarded as waste is to work uh, with the people designing products to design for recycling. Uh, we've, we've got to get into the heads of the advertisers and you know, the, the idea that uh, this trajectory of more and more packaging you know, and, it, and it's reflected almost one-to-one in the ocean. There's about 30% plastic packaging of all thermoplastic production. And out in the ocean, we found 27% thin plastic films in the middle of the ocean. So these, these plastic packaging, just about in the same percentage they're made on land, are, are winding up in the ocean. And, you know, only about 3.5% of plastics is recycled in any way. You know, a lot of these plastics you're carefully sorting in your bin are just going to be incinerated or landfilled. Just about the only thing that's really getting anything done with is the bottle bill because it's subsidized beyond the value of the bottle itself so that industry can be kick-started into taking some of this stuff back. Charlie, we're just talking about recycling, and this has been a big concern of mine because many of us think, oh, I can buy that because it's recyclable and it has the little arrow on it and it's okay. Yeah, no, the the chasing arrows is extremely misleading. Uh, it only designates the type of plastic, not whether it's recyclable or whether it has any recycled content. This was fought for by the industry as a kind of manufactured uh, uncertainty, which uh, I'll talk to you more about later, but uh, it creates the uh, image in the public's mind that uh, this is a user-friendly product. But as a matter of fact, uh, Many of these products are extremely dangerous. For instance, the polycarbonate bottle uh, leaches uh, bisphenol A, uh, and they're used in baby bottles. And the babies are extremely sensitive to bisphenol A in very low doses. And I can get into that later, but right now we're talking about recycling. And I think to make recycling work, what we need is an infrastructure that's based on a suite of plastics that are easily recyclable. And, and the only way to get that done is to have uh, the recycling infrastructure kick-started by government. The, the industry will only um, come up to the plate when they have uh, subsidies, and that's shown by the bottle bill. Bottle bills work in the sense of getting back about 60% of the bottles, but you have to pay more for the bottle than the plastic material itself is worth. Now. Eventually, if we want to make recycling sustainable, we've got to have uh, products that the value of the recycled material is sufficient to uh, fuel the industry that recycles it. So that uh, we've got to design products out of plastics that are easy to recycle and that can then be made into products that... uh, complete the closed loop as it is now virtually all plastic recycling is downcycling no none of the trillions of milk bottles ever made has ever been made into another milk bottle simply because as we talked about before plastics are lipophilic the milk fat gets in there the melting temperature of plastics not high enough to drive off the oily uh, milk fat that's in the plastic matrix so any milk bottle that's made into another milk bottle to have food contact be legal for that bottle it would have to be coated with a layer of virgin plastic on the inside so there's no closed loop what you get is you know 
carpet, you get uh, fleece, uh, you get uh, fabric, uh, you get uh, plastic wood, and eventually all that stuff uh, winds up in the landfill. Now, there is efforts being made by Patagonia to put in their stores a bin where you can bring your old Patagonia fleece in. And your underwear, I understand. And what they've done is they've worked with a Japanese company to invent a machine that will sort that stuff and take the zippers off and and make it into a fabric that can be reused in a garment. And they think that's adding value to their product and and the wave of the future, and I have to agree with them. I think that uh, uh, what we need to have is this concept William McDonough pushes in Cradle to Cradle of... uh, technical nutrients that uh, we get it with biologicals we know we can take a tomato and compost it and fertilize and make another tomato but there's a infinite cycle that it can go on forever without harming the environment there is there is such a concept could be applied to industry in which i think uh, it's we, great yeah yeah we have a technical nutrient that can feed an industry that then makes this product over and over again but that will require uh, as you say, uh, kind of a regime change in the way we think right now, and it's going to require uh, fewer um, and less creative uh, product uh, design in a certain sense, less composites. You know, it's very difficult to take the, one of these potato chip bags that has the aluminum coating on the inside and the plastic on the outside. They do that to make a better vapor barrier. Metal is more resistant to air transport, but uh, that makes it tougher to recycle. you got to separate the aluminum from the plastic, and you know, there's ways around that stuff. So, yeah, it's um, it, it, it's not going to be easy creating a recycling infrastructure in which uh, the plastics uh, have a sufficient value so that, say, when your recycle bin gets picked up, you get that value of the things that you put in the recycle bin deducted from your trash bill. I mean, I think you should be paid for your recycling, and, and it should come off the cost of uh, picking up your trash because you're contributing value to industry by recycling. Now, you know, that we're a ways away from that, but I think that's the direction we have to go. Well, I think it's great there are some companies that are field testing some of these technologies, and that maybe will stimulate other companies to do the same. But in reality, it sounds like consumers really need to just reduce and reuse as much as possible the other two R's that are pretty significant and just reducing our use of plastics. Yeah, they, they, they don't get the billing that the recycling does, and the recycling really is, is uh, kind of a smokescreen for um, a really non-sustainable uh, throwaway society that uh, basically wastes 95% of its uh, plastic resource. Yeah, the way I think about it a lot of times and is, like, if you buy a... Uh, a plastic container of, of orange juice at the store. You'll drink that in about two minutes, but then you have a lifetime of plastic left over from that drink. And I, I try to think of that sometimes when I'm at the store making choices of things to buy. Yeah, well, another thing you need to think about when you're making choices of things to buy with plastic is the leaching of the plasticizers. You know, virtually all plastics have phthalates in them, uh, polybrominated diphenyl ethers, uh, and, and your polycarbonate's got bisphenol A. Now, those are all hormone disruptors, and the uh, recent global obesity and diabetes epidemic is probably related to the exponential increase in these man-made chemicals over the last two decades. Uh, we're getting heavy doses, uh, and every woman in America has a heavy dose. America women have the heaviest dose of PBDEs. There's, there's no women free of these chemicals, and, and these things... Uh, 
uh, have adverse effects on sperm count, the ovary, and changes in behavior following prenatal exposure. I mean, these compounds have the potential to impact development in every system in the body. You know, the developing organism, the embryo, the fetus, the neonate, and the pubertal individual are particularly sensitive to endocrine disruption. So, and you know, even though these chemicals provide us uh, with many advantages, we need to be more discerning regarding their application to consumer products in order to lower the risk for this particularly sensitive pop population of, of, of women and children. So this is applying to humans, and I'm assuming this also applies to the marine wildlife in the ocean that is affected by this up the food chain. Oh, yeah. We have uh, snails. Uh, marine uh, and uh, aquatic snails now are producing what we call super females. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, they have uh, additional female organs, uh, enlarged accessory sex glands, gross malformations of the paleo oviduct, and a stimulation of egg and clutch production. Uh, resulting in increased female mortality. Um, uh, there was 15% uh, mortality in exposed snails compared to a control mortality of 4%. So they're, they're uh, significantly uh, uh, statistical effects uh, at these concentrations that are, you know, similar to what, we're, what, what humans are getting. So the animal data is coming in. Uh, I mean, we're seeing uh, mice, uh, that uh, become obese uh, when they're exposed to these chemicals. We're seeing mice behavior. I mean, the male mouse, the male rat, the lab rat, spends virtually no time on the nest with the babies. It's the, it's the female that gives birth and nurses the babies. But if you expose a male rat to some of these plasticizers, it spends more time on the nest than the mother does. I mean, uh, and, and, and uh, humans, we're seeing... Uh, Undescended testicles, we're seeing uh, the fat pad of males start to resemble the fat pad of women. Uh, it's just an amazing series of experiments and lab results that are just spewing out at an exponential rate. I mean, the plastic in the ocean increased exponentially in the last decade. It was going up about the level of production, and then with the globalization and everything being packaged in plastic, it went up exponentially. It goes up by a factor of 10 every two to three years off Japan. It went up by a factor of 100 in the Southern Ocean in the 1990s. Well, the, the effects of these chemicals are also going up exponentially, and the research, fortunately, uh, is starting to go up exponentially as well. And so it's no longer a question of are they affecting us. It's a question of how bad and which population is most affected. And that's what these results are showing, that the really serious things are in the the developing fetus and the, and the child and, and the mother, although, you know, male sperm counts are down 50% as well. I think this is a good example of where scientists are going to really have to work to communicate findings with the media and the public because there hasn't really been in the media all that much until recently. I'm just starting to see articles on these topics, and I think when the science is is got some conclusions to share. I really hope that scientists will help share this information to get it out. Well, the, the World Laboratory just sponsored uh, uh, a world symposium on uh, plastic pollutants in water at uh, the 36th uh, International Conference on Planetary Emergencies. And, and the scientists of the world assembled there elevated this topic to a level of nuclear proliferation, global warming, 
and avian flu. I mean, uh, the level of seriousness of uh, the plastic pollution and the chemicals in plastics uh, affecting our world is now on that level. So uh, you're right. Uh, more publicity definitely needs to be devoted to this topic. Well, that's a great segue because there are some local artists here in West Marin, Judith Selby Lang and Richard Lang, who have been working to share their inspiration, um, mainly a large part from your work, Charlie, to uh, let people know about the drastic changes in the environment. And Richard Lang, I believe, has joined us. Richard, you're on the air. Hello. Can you hear me all right? Yes, welcome. Hi, Richard. Hey, Charlie. So I'm, it's really great to have all of you here because you've both been inspirational to me as an educator, and I'm glad to have you both on. And Richard, I'm hoping you can share us, with us a little bit about this upcoming installation you have at University of San Francisco. Uh, it's up right now. It's at the uh, Geschke Library in the Fountain, um, part of uh, an exhibit called Earthly Concerns. And outside the library, there is a fountain, and we have floated 4,600 pieces of plastic, which, um, according to Charlie's figures, uh, 4,600 is approximately the number found in every square city block in the ocean. So there's a lot of plastic there. It's wonderful to watch people walk by. We set it up um, a week ago, and uh, everyone stops and, what's this? So we tell them. Is there some uh, written piece of the exhibit there? Yeah, so all along the all along the edge of the fountain, there are four or five little um, um, explanations. That's excellent. So, where? How long is this going to be up? Is this something that anybody could go? Anyone and can watch? go. Um, the exhibit is from uh, August. It was August thirty twenty first, and it's up till October twenty second. On Thursday, September seventh, uh, Judith will be on the artist panel. Um, in the Marashi room in Frome Hall at US, USF. Is there something on the web that you could send people to to find I'm, more information? I'm sure there is if you go to the USF website. USF website. And uh, both of you have been doing projects like this for a while, bringing attention to the drastic uh, change in the amount of plastic in the ocean. Can you describe some of the other projects you've been doing? Well, it's been eight or nine years, and... Um, Lucky us, we have a barn where we can store the three and a half tons of the stuff we've picked up. Um, and so we've been making art exhibits. We've had over 20 exhibits um, of the things. Um, uh, we had a show at the uh, Bay Model, which is for the Army Corps of en- Engineers in Sausalito, and we did a, a kind of a fantasy show. Uh, it was called The Plasticine Discontinuity. And it was um, a fantasy of 12,000 years in the future where a geologist and an anthropologist have discovered this anomalous layer of rock that's not rock at all but plastic. And so the exhibit was what they've mined out of this layer, of, of uh, this geological layer. That's excellent. Wow. It was, it was funny. You I mean, might ho- like to know uh, that seven times the amount of plastic that's in your barn flows from L.A. down the two major rivers every day. Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? That's every day through two rivers. That's not even considering the rest of the world. That's right. Yeah, well, the L.A. Basin. You should also know that we're in no way cleaning up the beach. Um, we call it curating the beach. We're just picking up the good stuff. I think that's great, Richard. And and I know we've, got a, we've got a great collection of um, plastic pellets, the nurdles, um, and we're, doing, we're having a show at the um, San Francisco Museum's Artist Gallery in Fort Mason in November. 
And we've got, uh, at my print shop, Truly Impressed, we've um, photographed and printed really large, you know, four-by-five-foot images of these little plastic pellets. And the whole idea is, um, you know, the we all get numbed to these facts, and they they no longer circulate in our um, in our minds. But when you see it as artwork, and you see it with a little bit of good humor, you see it with um, just pure beauty. Some, some, somehow the the message gets across a little bit better. That's great. I know you have some competitors out here on the beaches out now that they've realized what they can do with this stuff, that it's not viewed so much as trash, but it can be viewed as an art resource for free. That's right. Uh, but, you know, you need to realize that uh, beach cleanups have no effect on the amount of trash deposited on the beach. Uh, no. It depends absolutely. solely on the amount of rain. No, absolutely. Yeah, we get, uh, you know, our high season is in February when we get a lot of rain. No, we're not cleaning up the beach in any way. We're just trying to draw attention to it. We've got a, um, a little 1980 um, Chevy Love pickup that's completely covered in white plastic, and it's all from Kehoe Beach in Point Reyes Seashore. Yeah, Charlie, we took this idea as well this year, and we had a giant Pacific octopus float go down Main Street for a parade out here, and it was covered in marine debris. And most of it was plastic caps from water bottles, soda yeah, bottles. That's, that's a really, really big problem for birds. Uh, the the Laysan albatross loves bottle caps, and, you know, they're a different kind of plastic. They're not covered by the bottle bill. You're not getting any pl- bottle caps recycled by recycling your plastic bottles under the bottle bill. They're polypropylene. The bottles are polyethylene. Only the polyethylene is recyclable. Right now, there's no polypropylene recycling industry. Every single bottle cap is waste, and birds are eating tons of those things. 200,000 Laysan albatross chicks every year die full of bottle caps on Midway and Kure Atoll in the Hawaiian chain. Uh, We've got to have a program uh, to deal with bottle caps, and, and one of the things we're doing, we're sponsor, helping to sponsor a, a paddle from the Oregon border to the Mexican border by Tom Jones, uh, 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 an extreme athlete, who is going to um, talk to people about the bottle cap issue. We'd really like to see a company like Patagonia step up to the plate and take back the bottle caps because they are killing wildlife in, by the millions. When does this paddle start? Uh it's starting uh, uh, at the end of the year, I think, uh, he's doing land waterways first. He's going to be coming up to your area and sampling Lake Merritt and doing some inland waterways because we don't really have any data uh, for what's in the lakes. You know, we've got some stuff on the rivers. And he's going to try to do Sacramento River, too, but um, he's going to do the run-up to the to the extreme paddle by doing the inland waterways, and I think next year he'll do the... Uh, do the extreme paddle. I think during the uh, during the good weather part of 2007. So what I'd like to, we're getting close towards the end of the show, and what I'd like to ask both of you uh, is, what is the one thing you would like to tell people about their role in protecting the ocean? I'd love for both of you to answer. Charlie? Uh, the one thing uh, I would uh, talk to people about in terms of protecting their role in the oceans is, um, you know, to think very long and hard about future generations um, and plastics' effect on them. Uh, the only way I think people are going to be motivated to reduce their consumption of plastic is if they realize that it's lowering the sperm count in men, 
it's making uh, fertility clinics uh, go sky high in profitability. And you have to realize that most of these um, artificial insemination things yield twins, and twins are much uh, more susceptible to um, uh, birth defects. And, and, and it's a, a big issue having all of our insemination done artificially. So when you're thinking about plastic in the ocean, think about yourself. Think about your future. Think about your family. Think about these chemicals leaching out of this plastic. All of these plastics have things that are leaching into the stuff that you're eating, and it's now proven that these endocrine disruptors are affecting you and your family and the epidemic of obesity, diabetes, tension deficit disorder. So I think way to get you to reduce your consumption of plastic that eventually makes its way to the ocean is to just have a little enlightened self-interest. Take care of yourself. Uh, steer clear of that stuff. No, it's true. Um, I, I think writing to um, individuals, writing to uh, the manufacturers, the products they buy is really important. It really gets people's attention. And, uh, you know, for example, write to the um, local newspapers. Every, every day in San Francisco, newspapers delivered in plastic bags. In San Francisco alone, there are 18 million plastic bags that are just completely unnecessary um, uh, in, the, in dry weather. Write to the write to the IJ, write to the Chronicle, who was ever delivering your newspaper. I mean, things as simple as that. Um, um, it's important to actually be involved. Those those plastic bags, when they are used, can be uh, made of recyclable materials. Um, City of San Francisco has a program for recycling organic waste, and they provide um, plastic bags that are biodegradable. This is a real possibility, but it's expensive at first. And once the, um, once the scales get tipped, uh, people will be doing this as, a, um, as a, a real gesture. Excellent. I want to thank both of you for taking some time to share your experience and knowledge with the community of Point Reyes and live on the web, maybe worldwide, kwmr.org. And I look forward to seeing this exhibit in San Francisco. And, Charlie, I look forward to continuing to work with you on some of our education projects. Charlie, it's a, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. Um, you're a real hero to me. Well, I, I, uh, you know, it takes uh, a break with the status quo that only art can provide to get people's awareness. Uh, so I also admire your work. Well, thanks. Excellent. Well, I'm going to sign you guys off for now, but we'll be in touch soon. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you, Jenny. Thanks, Jenny. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, folks, we've been listening to uh, Captain Charles Moore and Richard Lang, a local artist, talking about plastic in the ocean. And we have a lot to do in the future, and a lot of this has to do with future generations and teaching our, our youth and our current populations to reduce and reuse as much as possible 